I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Guest today is Send in Blue COO Olivier Legrand. Send in Blue is the leading all-in-one digital marketing platform for small to medium-sized businesses. In his role, he is responsible for overseeing strategy, operations, go-to-market talent, and international growth. Before joining Send in Blue, Olivier was the VP and managing director of Asia Pacific and China at LinkedIn. And under his watch, LinkedIn's Asia Pacific doubled its membership and tripled in revenue. Prior to that, Olivier served as a director of marketing in Asia for the Wall Street Journal's Asia franchise, driving marketing and advertising initiatives across both print and online platforms. Olivier holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from Paris School of Business. And Olivier, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad I'm actually speaking to someone from Paris. I'm going to ask you when we're done some specific questions about some skiing because I'm taking my boys to go skiing in, in uh, France this year. So I might have some questions for you if you're a skier. Oh, I'm, I'm your man. I love skiing. Okay. Uh, well, the three valleys is where we're, we're probably going to go. So I'll ask you some questions when we're done. Good day. Very good day. So let's go. I'm going to ask you about Send in Blue in a few minutes, but can we just go backwards? And I want to talk, I want to talk mostly about your experience of working in the Asia Pacific area and, and what you were doing with LinkedIn. And then just ask you what you're seeing with that region right now. And um, so maybe just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I just came back to France after 19 years uh, in the Pacific. So I spent eight years uh, in Hong Kong and about 11 years in Singapore. Um, Hong Kong was the place where I started my first business, by the way. That was my, my journey into entrepreneurship. I started a company called CreAsia over there, then worked for the Wall Street Journal, uh, and then long story short, um, I did a lot of digital jobs for non-digital companies. I started in banking for a big French bank called BNP Paribas, then, um, you know, worked for myself in agency, then worked in publishing. And so, um, I wanted to be, uh, working for a pure player. That's when I came across LinkedIn at the very early days uh, of the business in Asia Pacific. So turned LinkedIn in 2012. Uh, funny enough, LinkedIn at the time was pretty much the size that Sending Blue is today. It's about 600 people and about wow. 100 million AR. So, uh, did the journey from 100 million to 10 billion, uh, with, with LinkedIn and all of that from, from Asia. Uh, what can I say about Asia? I mean, a, an incredible re- region, very, very diverse. You know, when, when your region goes from Australia to India, from uh, Japan uh, to China, 
um, you have to learn that uh, Asia is not one market or one region. It's a multitude of markets. And you spend a lot of time, especially in, uh, you know, global companies. I work for LinkedIn, which is a, you know, Silicon Valley based company. You spend a lot of time educating about the fact that you don't have a region, but you actually have a portfolio of markets. And, and I used to think about that portfolio in the form of, you know, core venture and strategic and saying, okay, my core markets are Australia and say Singapore. Because a lot of the behaviors on the LinkedIn platform back then looked a lot like what you would see, for example, in the UK or in the US. And then, sure. you know, um, I would say strategic market for me, for example, where India, uh, for the longest time and then uh, other, other parts of Southeast Asia, I would say outside of Singapore, particularly Indonesia, uh, because there we had both a strong product market fit, but different kinds of challenge when it came to monetization, the, the type of, Members were acquiring were different. The type of customers were servicing were different. And then I had a bunch of, a bunch of venture markets, which was typically Japan and China, which were the hard ones where the product market fit was complex. The monetization piece wasn't straightforward. And oftentimes this piece, um, required for us to think about product. And, and, you know, when you build a global business on, on technology, especially a global software business, we all want to build a product that's as ubiquitous as possible that everybody can use pretty much in the same way everywhere in the world. And the more you can achieve that, the better it is for your ability to scale the business. But sometimes you come across markets that have very unique, uh, whether it's business requirements, if you think about China or cultural requirements, if you think about uh, markets like Japan, for example, uh, or even India. And that forces you to think about your value proposition slightly differently. And so, that's sort of what I've learned during those 20 years in Asia is to uh, focus on on the core and the things that are common. Because I think uh, although across the world, whenever you talk to your team and I have the same here at Send in Blue, when you go to Germany, people tell you, oh, it's different here in Germany. And then you go to India and they tell you it's different here in India. And it's very true. Uh, but there's many things that are common. You know, a business yeah. is a business. You need to make more money than you spend. Like there, there's a bunch of foundational uh, things that are, um, that are common, but there's also sometimes the need to uh, listen and understand um, how you can do better and serve better the audiences that are in this market and what differentiate them from from others. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I was just speaking to my wife the other day. We're uh, we've been to 34 countries together in the last four years. Um, I've been to 62 countries, 64 countries, something like that now. How did and you was, do this during COVID? Like, it's crazy. You must have like. We figured it out. <laughs> but it, what was interesting is, is we were driving on, on a highway. Um, where the heck were we? I don't remember. Where were we before Scotland? Anyway, we were driving and I, I said, um, it, it just seems like, oh, we were in Poland. I said, so much of what we're seeing in Poland is the same as North America. And yet it is so completely different. Like it, it looks at times like you could be in any North American city. I'm from Canada, but then culturally it can be so different. What I'm curious about is how do you operate the business with so many of these distinct markets, these three distinct types of markets you mentioned? Do you operate with very different plans for each market or very different teams for each market? How do you keep them focused when one group is working in one direction, one is different, you know, in a completely different direction? Yeah, it's a bit what I meant when I talked about this, you know, core strategic and venture applied mm. to the way we looked at the markets. And so it was sort of a proxy to maturity and, 
and to um, you know product market fit and to ability to monetize. But we also had a similar approach of our, our activities uh, through a core strategic adventure. And, and the core things were the things that were, to my earlier point, quite ubiquitous, that were working across multiple markets and from which we're getting the most leverage. And on this, you could really line up your team and focus on execution, uh, you know, and, and really be um, basically going through a playbook, like taking a playbook that you've done somewhere else and, and take it and roll it out and, and, and apply that playbook. And so that allowed to have a lot of consistency across your team uh, everywhere. Uh, and then you get into your, your strategic and venture bets within those markets. And it's, it's a bit like you're managing your money. Like you don't put everything on the venture. You put mm-hmm. some on, on the things that are uh, safer, safer bets. Um, and there really what you need is an incredible team. It's, uh, you know, I spent 19 years in Asia. If I were to tell you, um, that I'm an expert in India, Japan and China, I'd be stupid. Like, uh, you know, I, I, even up to 20 years, you, you just, you just keep learning, but you do lean on people who, uh, whose culture is China, whose country is China, who have been doing business there and who lived and grew up in China and people that uh, have done the same in India and Indonesia and, and so you, you become, you have to listen really, you have to hire very well, very smart people, people that are very aligned with your mission, your vision, the culture you want to build because they're going to be your champions in these markets. Um, and you have to work with them. Uh, and, and a lot of part of working with them is to listen to them, to hear them talk about, um, you know, what's different and what's specific and, and how they think you can crack the market. And then your, your job is to parse, parse through all this and, um, and prioritize and decide what is it that you're not going to do and what is it that you're going to pursue because, um, you don't want to, you don't want to run after every, every opportunity in the same way. So a lot of prioritization, a great team, um, focus, focus, focus. Yeah. And that was what I was really going to ask about when you mentioned leverage. I'm curious as to how you decide what your ROI or what your decision around that leverage is going to be. You know, we have those resources of people, time and money and how to get the highest ROI off those. And you mentioned some of it has to be strategic allocation. How do you, how do you prior, how do you prioritize or how do you decide? And then how do you also let the people down or let the departments down that know their idea isn't getting used or it's not getting used now? Like, how do you say no without killing the spirit and the energy when we become this kind of, kumbaya group hug that you know we don't want to hurt people's feelings yeah it's a great question i i think um so i'll i'll use uh the proxy we use at linkedin you know it's hard when you're in a large silicon valley company um you optimize a lot for the tools and the features that are going to be used by by the maximum number of people and so if, if you look at some of the venture bets we did, they were essentially in market that has huge TAM. Like if you look at China, if you look at India, uh, if you look at Japan, those were very big markets and very big opportunity. And so there's a moment where you're looking at, you know, okay, I'm going to do something slightly differently. Or are we going to try to approach uh, our value proposition slightly differently? But it's worth it because the amount of opportunity that we're going to unlock at the back of, of this, um, of this initiatives is worth the venture bet. Yeah. And so a lot of the education, a lot of the work that I was doing with, with our, uh, you know, leadership team, uh, 
uh, Jeff Winner and, and, and the rest of the team uh, was around um, building those cases and saying, okay, we're asking here to do something uh, in a slightly different way. Um, but we're not running every opportunity uh, equally. We, we've been, we've done our own work and here is the opportunity that's ahead of us. Uh, can we do it? Um, yes or no. And, and this happens on, on the, on the multi-year, um, you know, process. And so, you know, one year, um, India, Mexico, and then two years later, China, Mexico. Uh, because as you know, we live in a finite world from, from a, a resource perspective. There's so many engineering man hours that you have. There's so many go to market people. Even if you're a very well resourced company and if you hire really fast, it takes time to hire people, run them up. And, and the throughput is the throughput. Like you, know, you can't, can't go further. So it's all about prioritization. And so to answer your question on how you don't, you know, uh, ruin it for everybody. Like I've I had those conversations so many times with my team in Asia because when you are the guy in Japan, day in day out, you're breathing the Japan opportunity, and you see it in front of you. You see all these things that you could be doing, mm. and basically you come and you fight for them, and sometimes you get them, and sometimes you don't. Um, and so you, you're, you know, you know that you're potentially going to disappoint a, a portion of your team is going to be disappointed because their projects aren't going to make the cut. What we did is we were extremely transparent about the process. We we're saying, hey, from the beginning, know that we're not going to be able to do everything. We're exploring all of it. And here's the choice that we've made. And here's why we've made those choices. And by the way, you're a shareholder of the company. And your incentive is for the company to win, not just Japan to win. And I think you need to build a leadership team. And it's it's true in this environment. It's true in, at Sun and Blue today. Um, you know, every member of, of your executive team is both the custodian of the part that they're responsible for, but more importantly, their essential goal is to make the company win, not just their department win. And when people understand that what's going to get the company closest to a win is to, you know, follow the priority that we've all agreed upon, um, they, they'll wait. And, and the yeah. good news is, you know, six months later, a year later, they'll get a win and they'll be able to, you know, address one of those pain points that they've seen and that's been, uh, you know, hurting them like in their guts because they know they could, we could do better for, for their customers. And so I, I, um, it's funny. I had this conversation with our, with our German country manager recently. And, and my, my point to him was like, never give up. Like, uh, you know, you're asking for these things that you believe and, you know, Will improve the experience of your your German or DA, you know, um, users. And of course, we, we're not go, always going to be in a position to say yes, but but never get tired of fighting on behalf of the customers you represent because you're doing your job when you're doing this. And even yeah. if you, it's not a win at every at every fight, it's okay. You know, uh, you got to be mature about it. You got to understand that. You're here for the team to win and not just your subset of the team. Like it's a system subsystem conversation, basically. Like you, you work for the system and you're responsible for a subsystem. How do you balance, you know, your, your position there so that you optimize somehow for your subsystem or you create, you inform and you create and you give the information to the team that's going to make the arbitrage. At the end of the day, the best job you can do is to make sure that you represent as fairly and as accurately as possible, the opportunity that sits in your market. So it can be arbitraged in, in the best way possible so that the best decision can be taken for the system, for the company. Yeah, it makes sense. 
Okay, I want you to go back and just tell us a little bit about Send in Blue. Like, what does the company do? Who is Send in Blue? And then I want to find out why the heck you would leave a huge company like a LinkedIn to join not a not a small company. Like you said, I think you're at about 600 employees now. But why why would you have left a, such a huge organization to go to more of a mid-sized organization now? What was the what what grabbed you? Sure. So, so Send in Blue, as you said, is a one-stop shop for digital marketing, CRM. Basically, all channels that uh, small and medium businesses need to communicate to their customers. And our vision is to really democratize access to digital tools and technology that for the longest time were made available to larger organizations. And, and when I say democratize, I, I mean, you know, we want to make them accessible in, in all forms, accessible both from a usability perspective, when develop like tools that are simple to use that small, very small businesses can use and can onboard it on quickly and that are also affordable to use uh, so that uh, it, it's really uh, something that fits into the unit economics uh, of small businesses. And so now we've, we're have we serving like 300,000 customers across 170 countries. Um, the, the business is, uh, 85% of our business is self-serve. We're building a really solid mid-market and enterprise uh, component as well. Some of our customers are, are graduating to be bigger. But really, we, we grew from the ground up. And, and Armand's vision was, was our CEO. He started the company 10 years ago um, in India and then came back to France. He's, he's French. Um, was really uh, this, this democratization. was this idea of like empowering the small guys uh, so that they can, they can compete. And this has not changed. Like the, the true north is there. Uh, we're going to continue to do this. We just, um, you know, increased the, the, the fashion that we're doing this. Like we're doing this for email marketing, but also for SMS marketing, push notifications, CRM, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and many of those new features, by the way, were happened through also, um, uh, a bunch of acquisition that the company has done. Interesting. Okay. So, and, and then for you, what was it that grabbed you? What, what was it that you saw? I, um, so, you know, incredible decade at LinkedIn, absolutely life-changing organization. I, I learned so much there. But, you know, first of all, when you're 10 years into, uh, into an organization, you, you get, you get comfortable. And, and I think I got to that place where I wanted to get outside that comfort zone that LinkedIn had become for me. It, it wasn't always a comfort zone. I, I, I got stretched and pulled, uh, in, in so many ways in this organization, but, after a decade, when you're running a region, um, I felt uh, I felt wanted to get a, a stretch. And, and when I started to reflect back on, okay, what was the you know what what was the moment in the life of the company um, that I really enjoyed the most? Um, I think that moment where you've established a product market fit, which is the case for Sending Blue, you know, uh, when you have this amount of customers. And when you're starting to hit like a certain level of velocity and you're looking at a, a very large uh, total addressable market, which is, which is our case, um, this moment of scaling is really uh, one that I found super interesting and super mm. exciting. And so that's, that's kind of the energy I wanted to, to find. And after 19 years in Asia, um, so I first, I decided to live LinkedIn. I took, uh, 10, 11 months break, which was, which was amazing. Um, and spent quite a bit of time in, in France because we weren't able to come back during COVID. Asia was, was pretty close, as you probably know. Um, and when the time to look for a new opportunity came up, um, you know, with, with my wife and, and my kids, the question was like, okay, do we look, do I look again for another round of like five, six, seven years in Asia or, 
as a time to look uh, in in the direction of, of Europe and get closer to home. Although I, you know, I can call Asia home in, in many ways. I called Asia home for a long time, and uh, and this is when you know I came across um, Sandy Blue. I, I met Almo and uh, and I was really uh, interested with the stage the company is at that that moment of velocity, that moment of, of strong product market fit. And that moment where the organization, um, you know, was, was big and cross border, like, you know, 600 people, uh, in North America, all over Europe, people in Paris, in Berlin, in Seattle, in Toronto, in Noida, India. Mm. Uh, and so there's a whole set of new complexities on how to scale the foundation of a company like that. That was, that was really, uh, really attractive to me. And of course, the, the vision and the mission of the company, this idea of like, uh, helping the little guys compete um, is something that I like. So I've I've always been nervous about hiring somebody from a big a big organization, a big corporate, and bringing them into a not entrepreneurial. So I guess you're really not entrepreneurial anymore. You're more you are more of that mid sized organization. But what do you think that you had to do, or what did you do to make sure that that transition was smooth for you to to move into more of a leaner, faster you know um, organization than than LinkedIn? Or am I wrong? Maybe maybe LinkedIn was was more entrepreneurial because it was tech too. So LinkedIn was very entrepreneurial for for a very long time. The other thing is LinkedIn um, continued to grow at a really fast pace at massive scale. You know, when you're starting to grow, when you have a multi billion dollar uh, you know business that's growing at 45 percent year over year, it's a very different experience that the same size business, the same size business that's Flattish or growing in like low teens. And so, uh, and, and so that's, that's sort of really what was, what was impressive and interesting at LinkedIn in terms of the challenges that it was bringing that look a lot, um, you know, like what we're living here, which is, you know, the business is growing 40 plus percent, uh, you know, not at, not at a multi-billion dollar scale, but that's our objective. Like we want to, we want to 10x the business, uh, from a hundred to a billion in, in revenue. And, and for that, you need to continue to grow at scale, uh, that that's really important. You know, in terms of, of the transition, I'm I'm six months into the into the business, so you know I, I don't want to be presumptuous that uh, I I am fully transitioned as well. Sorry, I got the lights went off here. Can you see me? Okay. Um, uh, but um, I I felt I had to you know I, I how could I say that? You know, the first day, I, I, interesting enough though, you know, we, we decided to. Do business together and I, and I joined Sun in Blue and I started early April. And I remember that first day when I, you know, left my place in Paris, took the tube and went to Sun in Blue. Uh, although I had, you know, interviews with a lot of people, I'd been to the office a bunch of times and so on. Uh, I was very nervous. I was like, Oh, what is it that I'm going to find? How different is it going to be from what I've experienced for, for the past decade or in the past like three to five years? And, and one thing that I was really worried about was. Am I going to get into a very French office and a very French environment and so on? And so what I'd say is um, the, the culture I found, uh, the team I found, the work environment I found here was a lot more familiar than I would have expected. Like the, the Sending Blue office in Paris, you hear like people speaking English, Italian, Spanish. Um, every meeting I was in was conducted in English. Um, every notion, documentation, Slack, everything's happening in English. 
So the company was already, even before I came in, like very international in nature Mm. because of, you know, how the company was built over time because of the nature of our customers. You you adapt as well to the customer you serve. And so what I'd say is it made it a lot easier for me to actually come in and, and, and feel at home from, from, from day one. That actually led to my, my next question, which was what, what was your first kind of 90 days like, or, or even maybe give us the first three months in three, in kind of three segments. What was month one? What was month two? What was month three? What did you do? Focus on, et cetera. What did you avoid doing? Yeah. I, I, so first part was a lot of listening really, uh, you know, trying to, what, what, I, what I was, trying to avoid is to assume that I understood the business before being in and to sometimes you tend to oversimplify businesses. Uh, and I have to say, uh, I'm glad I did this because the, the sending blue business is, is actually quite complex because, uh, you know, co- uh, companies that have cracked uh, SMB acquisition in the SaaS world, you don't have that many, you know, most, most SaaS companies are going for the higher end customers because that's where it aligns better with their cost of sales. We crack like acquiring at scale, very small businesses on a self-serve platform. And so, um, you know, the, the first part was listening, uh, getting to know the team, understand the talent, like the people that were in there, um, understand the energy that was, that was in there. Um, the second phase was to try to identify, um, I don't want to say quick wins because, um, because that's not really what they are, but, but, relatively obvious places of opportunity. And and so one, one of the things that I realized uh, quickly is as the company grew, there was an appetite for more structure. Like in every conversation I, I was having with the marketing, with uh, the sales team, with the customer experience team, uh, with our with our product team, there's this moment where like everybody was saying, well, like we, we have a lot of things going on at the same time and it's getting more complex. And so there was a bit of a, of a push or, or a pull toward like more, a bit more process and a bit more structure, which was really interesting. And for me, um, the second phase was to identify those, those areas of opportunity. So I think for us, um, we have a massive area of opportunity in North America, for example. We, we are, it's about 20, 25% of our business. It could be way bigger. And so I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, Oh, that should be super interesting. Um, we have a very high-performing mid-market and enterprise team, which was a surprise for me and, and a good surprise. And, and I started to think, oh, that, that's kind of cool when you're developing tools for the small guys when the big guys are starting to buy it. Like It kind of means that you're doing good on your mission and vision. So you are yeah. actually democratizing and bringing tools that allow the small guys to compete and, and the small businesses. I shouldn't say the small guys. The small businesses, the proper businesses, the real businesses. and um, and to see that bigger companies are are sometimes gravitating toward that simplicity, that efficiency, that cost efficiency as well, and are buying your solution. And so, um, you know, one one of my first reflections to Alma was like, you know, when something's doing well on, on a company, I'm always wondering how you can push that further, like you know, put put gas on the fire, basically. And so, uh, and, and how do you make space in a company that has such a strong self serve DNA for? Mm. Um, for a, a, a proper go-to-market team that is going to be speaking to bigger customers and service them and so on. So bring, bring some of that. So I think that's, that's one of our opportunity. Um, uh, it's something that, that we can pursue, um, going forward. 
I want I wanted to ask you about that a little bit about the the, the, the go to market stuff, but specifically even more on the sales and marketing side. I'm curious. You're you're really a marketing SaaS business, not not so much a marketing agency, but a SaaS marketing. How much? What percentage of revenue does does Send and Blue spend on sales and marketing? Oh, it's it's a big portion. I mean, our, our I mean, performance marketing is a big engine. Like for us, if you think about a business like ours, like um, marketing is is sales for uh, the self serve business, and sales is sales for the enterprise business. Like this, this is how we grow. This is how we bring in and acquire small companies and bring them to the platform, onboard them to the platform, and have them start using. So you know, uh, marketing is a big big chunk of of our of our investment. I. I I don't have the percentage t- top of mind, uh, but uh, acquisition, marketing acquisition is uh, is really important in business like ours. If you want to, if you want to build a scalable, high velocity business like the one we have, um, it's it's a it's a growth, it's an important growth engine, it's a very important growth. Engine. And are you working with any outside marketing agencies, or are you doing it all in house? Are you at the no all in house, all in house. Okay. Interesting. And we go, we do the whole like you know performance marketing, SEO. Um, affiliation partnership, like you know, um, uh, we we also um, you know connect with through plugins with all the ecosystem from Shopify to uh, you know um, to 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 Presta and, and other or, or you know uh, the web editors etc. Like so, we we have to be on the, all those marketplace and plugged in. Uh, you know, your, our customers can be can have needs of, of uh, you know, classic uh, email marketing needs or SMS marketing needs. But we also have, of course, more and more with COVID of our customers that started to build a presence on commerce, on e-commerce. And so, um, which has been driving some of our M&A as well and some of our acquisition. Okay. How many, how many companies have you acquired and, and what are you, what is your focus around M&A? And then, I guess part to that would be what percentage of your growth is going to be focused on M and A versus organic. Yeah, so so we've acquired um, six or seven companies. I, I, so the the first acquisition was Newsletter to Go, which is a, was a big German competitor of ours. So really buying company that was doing that we're doing. Since that, since then, we bought uh, Pushal, Metrilo, um, Meatfuck recently. Uh, so a, a number a number of com- companies and and. So there's been one or two acquisitions that were in the core business. The others were really to bring in features. So if you think about push all, it's all about push notification in the Shopify ecosystem. If you think about Metrilo, it's really about um, e-commerce analytics and being able to provide this to our, our users that are starting to build their e-commerce presence. Um, if you think about Meatfox, it's about scheduling and how when you run a small business, at some point you want to be able to create like as part of your CRM, easy ways to scale your schedule time with a customer success person or a salesperson. Um, so it's really a addition. Uh, and, and I think um, that's one of the things that I've uh, appreciated uh, at, at Sandy Blue. Um, and I've told Almo is um, I think we're very pragmatic from, from the uh, build versus buy perspective. I, I worked in a lot of like, if you think about most Silicon Valley tech company, our build company first. You know, they, they, you work with engineers that are really smart. They want to build stuff. They can build anything and they want to build stuff. And sometimes you point them at something and you say, hey, look, like this, this thing we want to build, like somebody's already done it. They're it's already smart. there. Like, why are, we, already why there. are we building a car? There's a car right outside for sale. Exactly. So how about we bring these guys in and, you know, like maybe their business standalone is not as strong, but their business is part of 
us, uh, you know, is is finding a lot of leverage. Um, and so uh, coming from Silicon Valley companies, there's this strong DNA and tar- strong like so default toward toward build versus buy. Although LinkedIn has done a number of great acquisitions, so you know it, it's not that restrictive. Um, I find that here, um, Amo and, and and our tech team uh, a lot more pragmatic about this and, and uh, recognize that you know um, CRM is something that not everybody knows how to do. And yes, you can learn, but you know if you if you can bring in people that are really good at it and understand it deeply, they'll they'll add up to to the to the uh, to to the, to the opportunity that e-commerce and you know Shopify, Presta ecosystem uh, are interesting, but they have their own complexities, and some people are really fluent in them and know how to uh, you know leverage them in, in the most efficient manner. How about we bring in people like that? And typically, Shashank, who's the CEO of Pushal, um, is amazing at that, and he's bringing a lot to our exec team. Um, by, uh, by bringing that expertise and, and a lot more to be honest. I don't, I don't want to reduce it to this. I have a couple of questions again, still on the transition. And then I want to go back in to talk about, um, Asia Pacific for a second on the transition. Just briefly, how long does it actually take? Do you think to feel like you now are in place and you, you know, the transition is over? You're, you're kind of there and you're solid. And, um, and then secondly, what can you teach us about when a, a seasoned COO is hired to come into an organization that already is there and is exists. And you've got people that might've been vying for the job or people that are now, you know, that have been there for years that are now reporting to you. Any lessons that you can give us around that as well? Yeah. In terms of the time to get your, your fit under you, I think it's pretty much now. <laughs> I would say I'm like five months old. Uh, and, uh, I'm starting to feel that way for, for like, I would say, yeah, three weeks to a month, maybe where you start to have clarity on what is it you want to work on? What are your OKRs? Um, you start to have a bunch of quick wins under your belt. Like, you know, like this is the moment where you start to know the people as well. I mean, I should, should have started there. Like you start to feel a part of the team, know the people, um, understand their side of the equation, not just have a, a one-sided view of. Of the challenges that are, that are in front of you. Um, so I would say, you know, it's, it's a good, like, I think three to six months all in to, to get fully situated. Yeah. Um, you know, some people might be faster than, than, than I am, but, but that, that's sort of like, that's what it feels to me has been my, my journey. Um, in terms of coming into the organization, uh, I think it, it varies from, from, from one organization to the other, but, uh, here, First of all, I, I interviewed with pretty much every single one of those people. So they had a, they had a point of view to give on whether I could be a good fit or not. Uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, through the process, even though they were, they were probably not all of them were the, the final decision makers, but they played a part in, in, in bringing this in. The general sentiment uh, I've had, uh, at San Lu is, you know, th- there's so much to achieve that. They want to win. And, and, uh, and I think uh, a lot of what I felt from not just from, uh, you know, my team, the people that I work with or my peers, but, um, a lot of them were actually excited to see that the company was able to bring in someone, uh, with, with the background in, in a bigger organization like LinkedIn. I think there was a, there was a bit of pride as well in saying, okay, well, we're capable of getting talent like that. And, and I think that's a great sign of culture. Like, you know, Seriously. companies that, 
uh, are able to, um, you know, bring in, uh, strong talent and see the value in, in this and see the value of, of building a winning team, um, is incredible. And so I, you know, I have a document, which is sort of like my, my first hundred days thoughts and so on. And, and I feel what we've had over the last four months is both a combination of a really solid, like historical team, like our, our, our CRO, our CPO, um, uh, you know, our, our CEO, of course, like a lot of people that have been here a long time, but we're also, uh, I came in, but we have a new CTO that just came in. We have a new, um, chief people officer, um, Laura that just came in that is amazing. And, and so this ability to build that team has been, um, incredibly encouraging for me. And I think it's been a very strong signal to the marketplace and to, and to the team. Yeah, it sounds like you've done a really, really good job with the transition. And I love that whole point of, you know, it's a bit of a badge of honor when they can realize they are able to now hire these people. That's, that's a huge sign for the organization. It's, it's kind of an exciting stage. I know that this is going to be an impossible question to answer, but what are kind of, what are kind of like one or two lessons you can teach us about working? You know, what are they doing better in Asia Pacific that, that North American or European companies can learn from? You know, what are they doing better in India? What are they doing better in China? What are they doing better in, you know, um, maybe want, pick something from each of the three types of, of areas you talked about in the APAC? Oh, man, that's a hard one. Um, yeah. I think what I love about, uh, especially the emerging part of Asia, I would say India, China to a certain extent. I don't know if I would put it in It's the scrappiness. Like, that, like the, the, the people are hardworking and... They can be scrappy. They can, they try every angle, like really, um, very, very strong resilience and scrappiness, I would say. Um, which I think comes from, from their, they're bringing the, the, the environment in which you grow up, uh, the opportunities that are presented to you. The moment, you know, if you think about Europe or the US or, or, you know, we, we, Generally, we, we have a pretty sweet life. Access to school, access to many things is, is taken for granted. And, and in some parts of Asia, it's not. And I think it creates a, a grit and a scrappiness in people that I think is a superpower. All right. I, I want you to go back to, you know, you mentioned that you were hitting this kind of flat period at LinkedIn and you wanted to be challenged again. So now that you're back into this next organization, this next role for yourself, where are you growing? What are you focusing on in terms of your skill set to continue to grow? Because I think we always are. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm learning, I'm learning a ton. I'm, I'm challenged a ton. I think, um, so I'm growing a ton and, and really getting understanding and getting into the details of of the business and and of what everybody in my team is doing like i i feel that um you know i during my entire career i've had the belief that i i needed to hire people that were better than me than me or, or what they're doing like I, I do not need to be a better marketer than our cmo i don't need, need to be a better seller than our sales head nor um being a, a good customer uh experienced person to um to be the person that needs uh, customer experience but i do need to have a base understanding of what their day-to-day business is and so that I can be helpful, so that I can coach them, so that I can help them look in a direction that uh, because they're day in, day out in it, they might not. And so I, I, you know, in LinkedIn, because I grew with the business, I felt like that baseline sort of grew with me. Here, I need to sort of fast forward that, 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 that learning. 
Um, and, uh, and it's kind of a back to school. And, and that's one of the things that, for example, Amo, our, our CEO, has built this business brick by brick for the last decade. And the level of instincts, the level of hunch and understanding that he has for the business that's really, uh, you know, situated in, in so many repetition situations that he's seen leading, you know, like A means B means C. Um, that's the part that I find super challenging. I, I lean a lot on, on him at the moment on his instincts and, and sort of my role is also to go and like, Check the data and, and try to find like if those instincts can be converted into actual action that will uh, make, make the business better. But I really, I really want to build more and more of my own, my own shit. And so for now, my, my own, my own instincts are more anchored in external experience and the fact that I'm new to the business and that I have a new angle to it. I want to add to it depth and knowledge uh, onto it. And I think that's going to take time. Yeah. It's going to take really, really take time. Yeah. And, and the, the other part is, uh, in a company our size is the, the breast. Like, I mean, you know, my, my, I'm always, you know, the CEO. So he obviously uh, has an overview on everything, but really focuses his time on, on tech and product. And I'm more on, on the go to market and customer and, and HR side of things. So I like, you know, revenue, marketing, customer care, HR operations. Um, but you know, there everything is sort of like interconnected and intertwined, and so how our product and and engineering team. So, so really, the the variety of challenges that are coming our way over the course of the day is is incredibly um, fast, and and there's a lot to learn in the, in this environment. What what you touched on earlier was was about how you don't need to be as good as the people reporting to you in their functional area, but you need to understand it enough to be able to coach them and develop them and support them. I think that's very unique for the COO and the CEO is how, how do we, because, you know, the head of marketing could almost be the head of marketing for any organization. The head of IT can almost be the head of IT. Like very, they're very, for the most part, fairly plug and play. But the COO is so different because you have to understand the whole organization and all the different functional areas and be really good at the stuff the CEO doesn't want to work on. How, how do you get good at that stuff? Is it just by osmosis? Is it by being around it? Are you just a quick learner? Or are you? I'm, I'm relatively new at being a CEO. So I don't know that, that I've nailed it already. I, I think there are a few, there are a few things though that set you up for success. And I think, um, one thing that attracted me as well to, to Send in Blue is how complementary, uh, Almo and I are in terms of, you know, our, 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 our past experiences, our, our personalities. Like we're very, we're very different persons. And, and I think, um, a lot of the opportunity come from that complementarity, from, from him being incredibly good at things that, uh, I can absolutely grow, uh, toward and me having a certain experience in some areas. I'm all, you know, came out of school and started this company and it's, it's, you know, it was home run, almost home run for the beginning. Of course, there was a journey to get to where it is today. And, and, and so there's been some difficult times, I'm sure, but he's been basically investing as, you know, life and blood in, in this organization. I, Worked overseas, worked in different industries, in different, and so it's the complementarity piece. I think is extremely important. You mentioned you mentioned something to me before we started, which was interesting, and then I want to wrap up with a final question. But you said that most of your customers are the kind of real businesses. They're not. They're not all just venture backed. That 
they're real businesses that make, you know, they have real P&Ls and, and, and so your customer base is really solid, even though we're in this kind of bit of a weird time right now with the economy, with inflation and potential recession. Are you guys venture backed or are you, are, are you? Yeah, just- we are. We are. We, uh, we raised our last round was, uh, in, at the end of 21, November 21, we raised 160 million, uh, dollars. And, uh, and so we're, we're backed both by, uh, BP, which is the, um, uh, the French, uh, fund, like the foreign investment fund and, and the, um, uh, uh, and also a venture capitalist firm called Partech and, and, and a fund called Bridgepoint. And so, we're yes, we're absolutely venture back, but we are, um, you know, I, I repeat what I said. If, if you look at our customers, um, they're real businesses, not in the sense that venture back businesses aren't real, but, you know, we're, we're not a company that's built a SaaS product that we're selling to other startups. We're, we're a company yeah. that was built to help mom and pops businesses and medium sized businesses and now bigger businesses, um, start using the digital tools they need to be successful. And of course, there are some startups in there and, and they are awesome and we love having them as customers. But we have yoga teachers. We have like restaurant chains. We have, uh, you know, coaches. We have uh, a lot of different, uh, you know, shapes and forms uh, of companies, basically. And I think, um, I think that's a, that's a driver of resilience for our business. Uh, you know, uh, those businesses have been around for a very long time. They're able to adapt really quickly. Um, and one thing that we do that I think they will always need to do is we help them speak to their own customers. Mm. And, and you can think about recession. You can think about inflation. The last thing you're going to be stopped doing that you should stop doing if you're running a business is engaging with your customers, is having a conversation with them, is telling them what you can do to help them uh, navigate through this. And I think we, we do that with our own customers. We help them navigate. We try to understand their reality in this, in this new world. We're an affordable solution as well. And we want to continue to be that. And we want to help them maintain that connection with their own customers. Well, I'll tell you, you are certainly the cool kids on the block right now. Cause I did a, a post on social media recently asking, you know, what kind of company should we look for for email automation and SMS marketing? And, and it was send them blue, send them blue, someone else, send them blue, send them blue, someone like, it was awesome. two, two or three to one. Yeah. From a very, uh, a fairly savvy group of entrepreneurs from, um, the young president's organization and entrepreneurs organization, a very good group. And, uh, I was surprised because I hadn't heard of you yet, but boy, you were everywhere. I want to go back. Last question to the 21 or 22 year old Olivier Legrand. You're, you know, you're just starting off in your business, business career. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today? Oh, yeah. That, that's a question that I've been asked before. And, and I always give the same answer. Um, and it's don't shy away from complexity. Um, I, I work with new graduates in, in different like development programs we've had at LinkedIn and other companies and, and here. And, um, and that's an experience, a personal experience from when you start work. You know, there's always that moment where you have a choice of a bunch of projects. You could do this or you could do that. And one of those products looks really hard and another bunch looks like pretty easy. And, uh, my advice is go toward the hard one. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Like there's this, uh, you know, the science behind this. First of all, if you fail, nobody's gonna, you know, nobody's gonna be surprised because you picked the hard one. And, and if, if it's been on that table for a long time, it's probably because a bunch of people failed before you. And so the expectations are, are different. Um, however you look at, at it, you're gonna learn a ton of things about the business because in complexity, 
there's always learning, there's always growth, and and you'll have a, a depth of understanding and, and a view of the opportunity, the business that will be stronger than, than anyone else's. Um, and uh, and I know that sometimes as humans we're like, oh well, this is easy stuff I could do. Like, why don't I pick that one? It looks fun and easy. Uh, but especially when you're early in your career, go for the hard stuff. I love it. That's cool advice. Olivier Legrand, the COO for Send in Blue. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.